You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Melissa Hurst. We're doing something a little different this time around. In just the past few weeks, the U.S. Supreme Court has handed down a number of, some would say, surprising decisions that tackled pressing issues of such importance that we couldn't choose just one. So we've packed three interviews into one episode. You'll hear from Lauren Fultenberg on LGBTQ workplace discrimination and Nicole Militello on the court's decision to uphold DACA. But first, I'm taking on June Medical Services versus Russo, in which the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that would have significantly limited abortion access in the state. Though many abortion rights advocates were bracing for bad news, Chief Justice John Roberts shocked many by siding with the court's liberal judges. Abortion politics expert and political science professor Josh Wilson explains this decision and its implications for Roe v. Wade and the 2020 election. So could you just start by giving me sort of a brief overview of the case at hand? Abortion politics has, has really changed over time. Um, people think about it as being uh, being rather consistent, but it's, it's not. Uh, and different kind of tactics rise and fall over time. And uh, this case comes out of really a dominant tradition for the last quite a few decades of incrementally regulating abortion. And so states that want to restrict or limit abortion access find ways of trying to regulate around abortion. Um, And so this is an example of regulating clinics, right? And so the Louisiana law was was regulating clinics. Primarily here, the the main focus here was about doctors getting admitting privileges at local hospitals. And so this law really closely mirrored a law that was passed in the neighboring state of Texas that regulated abortion clinics along the same line. And so Louisiana passed this law. Um, The kind of obvious connection with the Texas law, which was struck down in 2016, that case is called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead. Uh, The court pronounced that to be uh, what's called an undue burden on women seeking abortion, which is a reference back to uh, a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that established a new standard in how we evaluate state laws that regulate abortion and whether or not they infringe on the right to abortion. And so the standard there is, uh, does it impose an undue burden? And uh, the court found in the Texas case that it did because it shut many clinics. And then uh, that gets us to to this case as well. So with the admitting privileges requirements, there are a lot of hospitals that don't want to give admitting privileges to doctors who are providing abortions uh, for reasons unrelated to kind of their uh, credentials as doctors. And so um, the court estimated that uh, a, you know it would severely restrict the number of doctors that would actually have admitting privileges and thus be able to provide abortions, limiting into the low single digits. And so that would impose a substantial burden on women seeking abortion because essentially you wouldn't have the number of providers to meet the demand in the state. So one of the things I found really interesting about this case is that after Donald Trump's two conservative appointees, there's been a lot of fear around how abortion law would look going forward. So this is sort of a surprise. From your point of view, was it surprising? Yeah, so I, I, I definitely found it to be surprising. 
And the reason why is that because the Louisiana law was so similar to the Texas law, it seemed that the only reason why the court would take it is in order to reverse what they had just established in the whole women's health case. In other ways, it's not all that surprising. Again, if we look at that, it's Chief Justice Roberts who wrote a concurrence that, that made kind of the liberal justices seem to, to triumph here. And actually, you know, they do triumph from, this, from the standpoint that they strike down Louisiana's law and essentially then affirm what they established in relation to the Texas law. But a really important thing to notice here is that, okay, so conservatives might be complaining that they now think of Roberts as this liberal and conservative clothing. Uh, and that's that's not a very good way of understanding uh, the Chief Justice. The better way of understanding the Chief Justice is that he understands his role as Chief Justice in part is to protect the court's legitimacy as a whole. The power of the court totally rests in people believing the court, right? The court relies on us to consent to it, to be convinced by it. Chief Justice Roberts really understands the role of legitimacy for preserving the power of the court. And that's essentially what he's done here is he said, hey, I still don't agree with what the majority decided you know, four years ago, but I have to preserve the legitimacy of the court and thus I have to abide by what came before. And so if you think about Roberts as Chief Justice, as protector of the court's legitimacy, this makes sense. So reproductive rights attorneys and advocates have noted that Robert's opinion seems to kind of leave open this door for similar laws to take effect in other states. I'm curious what your read was. Yeah, so his concurrence is really narrow. He spends a tremendous amount of time talking about stare decisis, which is essentially saying, you know, if cases are similar, we have to decide in the way that the case was decided before for the sake of consistency, that's for the sake of legitimacy. And then the next part of his opinion is he starts talking about the standard that governs both of these cases. And so I mentioned before, there's the precedent set by Casey. And if you, if you wanted to uh, have a more kind of full-throated kind of understanding of Casey, you would say that laws can only stand that regulate abortion, A, if they serve a valid purpose, and B, if they don't substantially burden women seeking abortions. He essentially spends the latter half of his opinion saying, you know what? We don't actually need to pay that much attention to whether the law pursues a legitimate end or not. What we really need to pay attention to is, does it establish an undue burden on women seeking abortion? So he's created a bit of a window for anti-abortion activists by essentially saying, hey, we're not gonna pay that much attention to whether the laws you're passing at the state level are serving a legitimate purpose. Okay, if that's the standard, there's a lot of things you can still do. You can keep incrementally chipping away at abortion here and restricting access. So this case doesn't directly wade into Roe v. Wade territory, but it might be an indication of how Roe v. Wade is going to be seen in the future and how the court might vote should Roe v. Wade ever come before them again. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious what you think it means for Roe v. Wade and what implications it might have outside of just this, this one law. Roe versus Wade 
is a long established precedent now. So if I'm an anti-abortion activist, one, the way that I would read this is we're not gonna be able to strike down Roe directly. So what does that do? It reopens and, and makes very clear to us that incrementalism is the way to go and that we still have ample room to regulate. We're never gonna be able to get rid of abortion altogether, but we can erect barriers or challenges to women getting abortion. The president promised the overturning of Roe right out of the, you know, right out of the gate. So that's going to happen automatically. Um, and you can see an interesting response in conservative states in that conservative states started passing really direct attacks on abortion, right? And so we can look at Georgia and, and Alabama and so forth, right? As passing these really extreme laws. And the important thing to recognize about them as to what actually makes them legitimately labeled as extreme is that, like I said, the previous quite a few decades, essentially 30 years of abortion politics, is that conservatives have understand, understood that the way to challenge abortion was through incremental regulation that did not draw attention. Right? What we've seen since Trump was elected is suddenly there's been a split in anti-abortion activists and within states uh, that want to regulate abortion. And the split you have are the states that have kept moving ahead with incremental regulations and the states that have said, we've got our president, we've got our court, let's shoot for the fences, right? Like, let's hit for the fences, right? Let's just try to get rid of Roe right now. What's important to see about the Louisiana case is I think it's a strong signal back to those states and back to anti-abortion activists that those swing for the fences laws are not going to be the legitimate way forward now. It seems like based on reading your op-ed in Newsweek, that a lot of what you talk about is the activism around abortion and, and the two different sides. And you did mention that the evangelical Christian side is something you research in particular. So I'm curious how this decision is being taken by, by the folks on both sides of this debate. Um, is it energizing both sides? Is one side feeling more comfortable now than they maybe were before? How does that all play out? A really important thing to recognize about abortion politics is that the vast majority of the country doesn't want to see abortion wholly eliminated. So there's this big, what's referred to by me and others as a mushy middle in American popular opinion around abortion. Activists in both camps will try to jolt that mushy middle awake. Right? And to say, hey, look, pay attention, something big is happening, and to get more people invested in abortion politics. Right? So before or after any case in the immediate, it's not a good time to gauge what either side is actually going to do in the long run, because they're trying to mobilize the energy of the moment. So Donald Trump has kind of taken up the abortion case, the abortion debate as sort of something he can use to mobilize his base. Um, overturning Roe was something he talked a lot about and one of the, the campaign promises he made. Um, so how is that looking now? Like with this kind of loss for him and for anti-abortion activists, how do you think this will play out in 2020? So I would fully expect that the way the president would speak to this is again, to use it as an example of why his supporters need to reelect him. You can paint 
maybe uh, Roberts as this traitor to the cause. He can point at his appointees and say, hey, look, you look at the two people that I appointed, they would have voted in the way we wanted them to vote. So keep me as the president for another four years and I will give you more of those justices and we will get changes over time. And, and then if we look to who he's speaking to here, really, he's speaking to white evangelicals. White evangelicals have for his entire presidency and into the, the, you know, into the first election, they are his strongest and most steadfast supporters. I think that they will see this again as a, just like the president, as a way to argue to their supporters, this is why we need to keep him in power for another four years. Well, thank you so much, yeah, Josh. No problem. Another important topic SCOTUS addressed this year was whether the protections included in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 extend to LGBTQ plus workers. Here's Lauren Fultenberg with more on that. Researchers from UCLA estimate there are more than 8 million LGBTQ plus workers in the labor force today. And yet, federal law has never explicitly protected them from discrimination based on their sexual orientation. There's something called Title VII in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It forbids discrimination based on someone's race, color, religion, nationality, or sex. Up until the Supreme Court's ruling in Bostock v. Clayton County, the meaning of that last word, sex, was up for debate. Workplace law expert Rachel Arno Richmond says the court's interpretation expanded the definition and extended protection to an entire class of workers. This decision surprised a lot of people, particularly because it was coming from a more conservative Supreme Court. Um, Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion here. Were you as surprised as a lot of people were in this country? I would say that I was more relieved than surprised. Uh, I agree with your assessment. I think the expectation of most people was that we would see a more conservative court um, finding against the employees in this case um, and sort of rejecting the idea of expanding the reach of anti-discrimination law. Um, at the same time, if this is a very narrow decision and it was a very narrow question um, coming down to the meaning of this one word sex. Um, and, you know, to my mind, uh, from a textualist perspective, uh, the analysis is very clear as to why sexual orientation is a form of sex discrimination. Um, and I will add that Justice Scalia, uh, who got much attention um, in both the majority and the dissenting opinion, um, authored a rare unanimous decision of the Supreme Court 20 plus years ago in Uncall v. Sundower, which was a case that recognized same-sex sexual harassment, that is to say, male-on-male -male harassment and female-on-female -female harassment as potentially embraced within the meaning of sex discrimination under this same statute. Uh, so we already had precedent um, by a conservative jurist that um, viewed the word sex and discrimination on the basis of sex um, in a way that is arguably uh, expansive or even progressive, um, although decided on very narrow statutory grounds, similar to what we see the court doing um, in this decision uh, authored by Gorsuch. You've mentioned the word textualism, and for people who might not be up on, on legal definitions, can you explain what exactly that means? 
at the broadest level, a textualist perspective uh, is looking at the language of the statute in isolation or relative isolation and trying to understand what the word means, um, irrespective of policy considerations, um, considerations of legislative intent in particular, um, looking specifically at the meaning of the word um, rather than the implications of the word. So since you mentioned legislative intent, uh, am I reading it right that the dissent's argument was basically that this was something that Congress should take up? This is not something for the Supreme Court to interpret and imposed. But, you know, at the simplest level, um, judges are supposed to interpret the law. They're not supposed to write the law. Uh, and so in a situation where the law, I think sort of one of the perspectives that is coming across in the dissenting opinion is the idea that because sexual orientation isn't listed as a protected classification, um, it would be wrong for the court to effectively write it into the statute. Um, that is the role of Congress. And so this goes back to the reason why um, the decision itself is so focused on the meaning of that word sex. Uh, because again, the only way in which the employees can succeed uh, in the claim is to assert that sex and the discrimination against sex prohibition embraces sexual orientation. The court is outside its role to simply add sexual orientation to the statute. That is the role of Congress. So, Rachel, you mentioned that this was a, a narrow decision. Does that mean that this issue is going to be litigated in the future? Uh, we're going to see more cases popping up and heading to the Supreme Court? I think this is a very powerful end-of-the-line type of decision with respect to the narrow question. And that narrow question is whether sexual orientation is covered by the statute. Now, how that then applies in different situations, that will be the subject of litigation. The uh, dissenting opinion raises all kinds of questions that are not before the court. You know, how will this, what will this mean in terms of locker rooms? What will this mean in terms of bathrooms? Um, what will this mean in other situations? So um, those cases uh, will certainly arise um, and the court will have to understand what this prohibition actually means in practice. Do you think that this decision from the Supreme Court which was tailored toward workplace protections will have implications outside the workplace? Yes and no. Um, this statute is focused on employment. Um, so that is all that the courts are deciding in this case. But I think it really comes down to an understanding of sexual orientation uh, and what sexual orientation is and how it operates. Um, which in turn requires us to really think deeply about what sex discrimination is. You know, what the majority is doing is saying, hey, if you have a man and you have a woman um, and they both like men, if you treat the man differently from the woman, that's straight up sex discrimination. The flip side is what, you know, Alito is saying is, um, look, that's not what's going on. You have a man and a woman and both of them are gay. And if they're both gay, they're both being treated the same if the employer fires them for that reason. That's how this decision operates. 
But I think there are hints in Gorsuch's reference to gender roles that are really important. I strongly suspect that the ability to achieve a majority in this case had a lot to do with the opinion's silence on this issue of stereotypes. Um, but in one or two places, uh, Gorsuch says quite clearly that failure to conform to one's gender role is sex discrimination. The reason, if you think of sort of classic sex discrimination, uh, 1970s style, uh, it was largely based on the assumption that women should be at home and not in the office. Um, when we extend that idea to sexual orientation discrimination, um, I think what we see is that similarly, sexual orientation discrimination at its heart is really about the failure to conform to gender roles. Um, the ultimate gender stereotype about men is that they will prefer women and with respect to women that they will prefer men. If you get to a place of deeply questioning why such discrimination exists, I think it's impossible to separate it out from our notions of gender roles, what are proper gender roles, and our stereotypes about how those uh, individuals who are assigned male or female organs should behave, um, and in particular should behave in the workplace. Um, so if that's what sex discrimination is, it's hard to understand why sexual orientation isn't simply another form, perhaps the ultimate form of sex discrimination. It's hard to imagine that um, it won't be used as some precedent for understanding the meaning of sex in other federal statutes. Um, so I do think in that respect, it could have um, broad application um, outside the workplace, not through Title VII, but as a precedent for interpreting the same language in other parts of the federal canon. So the last time we had a big LGBTQ decision was in 2015, when the Supreme Court effectively legalized same-sex marriage. How do you think this moment compares to that moment? It's hard to say, um, you know, sort of which is the bigger moment. Um, we have clearly been on a progressive path um, and moving in a progressive direction with a series of U.S. Supreme Court, court decisions that um, recognize the rights uh, of LGBT individuals. Uh, you know, in some ways, um, this is the least uh, expansive of those decisions, um, you know, certainly compared to Obergefell, which was a constitutional recognition of the rights of same-sex partners to marry. Um, this case, Bostock, is evaluating the meaning and the reach of one federal statute. Um, so, you know, I would say Obergefell in that respect um, was a more sort of stunning, a more watershed decision. On the other hand, um, the decision today in Bostock may have more of a day-to-day -day impact on more individuals. Um, almost all of us work, not all of us choose to marry. What I would say more generally is that we're in a period that um, perhaps despite sort of other trends in our society, we're in a period of um, progressive development in favor of recognizing LGBTQ individuals as full-fledged members of society. And it's, um, from my perspective, really wonderful, reassuring, um, and a true breath of fresh air 
um, to see the Supreme Court take this next step in that progression, um, notwithstanding um, the conservative bent of recent appointees. Rachel Arno Richman, professor and director of the Workplace Law Program at the Sturm College of Law. Thanks so much for your insight. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Finally, we're turning the mic over to Nicole Militello for an expert take on the Supreme Court's decision to uphold deferred action for childhood arrivals, also known as DACA. For the past few years, the fate of DACA has been on the line after the Trump administration declared it was ending the program, claiming it was illegal and unconstitutional. DACA was created by an executive order by former President Obama back in 2012. It's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which offers temporary protections to qualified individuals who are brought to the United States as children to live, study, and work without fear of deportation. The close to 650,000 DACA recipients are known as DREAMers. Recently, the Supreme Court blocked the Trump administration from ending DACA. We're talking about this ruling with one of the leading scholars in migration, Cesar Cuauhtémoc García Hernández. He's a law professor who studies the intersection of criminal law and immigration law. We start with the reasoning behind the Supreme Court's decision. Right, so the Supreme Court um, came to the conclusion that the Trump administration's decision to rescind DACA, that is to terminate DACA, uh, violated a federal law called the Administrative Procedure Act. And that law uh, doesn't apply only to immigration, it applies across the entire federal government. And it really dictates the way by which um, federal government agencies go about making policies um, that affect people's lives. And so this happens on a, on a daily basis. So the, 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 the key language um, in that law is that the, that the federal government cannot act in a way that is arbitrary and capricious. Well, the Supreme Court, in, that, in an opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts, came to the conclusion that that's exactly what happened in this case. That the, when, when, the, when the Trump administration decided to, to eliminate DACA, that it did so in a manner that was arbitrary and capricious. I think for uh, all of those hundreds of thousands of young people who currently uh, benefit from DACA, uh, the Supreme Court's decision, it was, in the, it was caused for an enormous sigh of relief, uh, an enormous uh, a sense that they are going to continue with life as it has become normal for them um, to, to be able to study, to be able to, to, to work um, as uh, all of us. Uh, are are able to do day in and and day out, Um, and the looming threat of losing that ability um, is for now at least in the past, Um, and we'll see um, what the Trump administration does in the next uh, few few months to see, and then of course what happens with the election to see, you know, whether that threat um, becomes a a very present danger to their lives yet again. Okay, and what was your reaction to the ruling? Uh, I was surprised. I, I have to admit, I, I, I um, was expecting uh, that the more conservative members of the court would have the vote to to uh, carry the day, um, and that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, would would uh, side with them. Uh, and so, um, I think this was this was one of those instances. That has taught me um, many times over in the past uh, to to not predict uh, how the court's going to to rule. I get out, uh, asked uh, on a regular basis when when uh, when uh, an important case is argued before the Supreme Court. You know, well, what do you think is is going to happen? What's the outcome going to be? 
Um, and and I've learned already the hard way many many years ago. I have to say, um, so don't don't try to predict because I have no idea uh, what is going on behind those closed closed doors. In fact, most of us don't. Um, and I think this is a reminder that it's better just to to wait and see, um, and then we can we can figure out what to make of the decision, um, but not necessarily of the process by which the court comes to its decision. So President Trump has vowed to try again following kind of the guidelines that were laid out by the Supreme Court. So what are his options moving forward? Well, the Trump administration um, is now has a pretty clear roadmap for how to go about uh, rescinding the DACA program. The, the Supreme Court um, noted that there were two particular reasons um, why uh, it, it, the administration's rescission pr- uh, uh, process was arbitrary and capricious. Uh, one was that the court took the view um, that the administration failed to consider whether or not the program could be separated into, into a, a deportation reprieve program um, and a separate uh, part that is focused on uh, employment authorization. And those two are very valuable uh, benefits that that recipients uh, get. See, the first is just a, a promise that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency is not going to not going to put you at the move you to the top of the list of its deportation uh, efforts. Uh, but the second one is is, is 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 just as important, and that is the notion that um, the the uh, a person who receives DACA um, can work. Uh, can can actually make a living while they're in the United States. And so the court's, court's uh, opinion very clearly laid out the fact that the, the Department of Homeland Security ought to consider more narrowly whether it's, it can it can segregate these two, it can divorce these two uh, parts, um, and um, and if it can, then it can go ahead and 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 and, and try to do so again and. And perhaps the, the outcome would be different that time. So this might just be temporary relief for now, but it also doesn't diminish how significant the ruling is. Um, so the head of ICE has previously said that he was going to start deporting Dreamers if the Supreme Court would have ended DACA. Can you just tell us more about what that scenario would have looked like? Yeah, the in, back in January, the um, the head of the uh, Immigration and Enforcement Agency, Agency did very clearly say that if DACA was allowed to to be eliminated, um, that his agency would uh, would not in any way steer clear of these young people. I mean, I think what what we would have seen then is that um, uh, people who are working as teachers and nurses and, um, and 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 who are studying in colleges and universities across the United States, and including at DU, would um, find themselves susceptible to being arrested by ICE, taken to one of it's many immigration prisons uh, across the United States, and 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 find themselves in the midst of a of a deportation process in those prisons um, that uh, we that that uh, we have one here in um, in Colorado uh, here in, in a suburb of Denver, Aurora, um, that's been around since the mid '80s, that are rather notorious for their treatment of of, of people. We're seeing um, COVID-19 um, is spreading. Uh, quite rapidly in those detention centers. Um, we have in the past, um, or very recently um, as well, seen deaths in some of these facilities, including the facility 
uh, here in in Aurora, um, and and that's that's a topic that to me is is rather um, or a possibility that to me is rather frightening. I'm I'm really familiar with the immigration prison system. I, uh, just a few months ago, I published a book, Migrating to Prison, that is, a, is specifically focused on the way that imprisonment has become such an important part of modern-day um, immigration law enforcement, and I was really worried about seeing the possibility that these uh, young people would find themselves in these facilities um, uh, facing the possibility of uh, forcible removal from the country. And that threat for them really isn't quite over yet. Um, so let's just talk about the politics of DACA. So the chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez, had said, um, if Donald Trump wins in November, he will end DACA. So just talk to us about how much additional pressure this puts on the 2020 election for Dreamers now. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it's entirely reasonable to assume that the administration is is working hard on, on revamping its efforts to to rescind DACA. Uh, frankly, I'm surprised that they hadn't already done that. I, I would have expected that they would be able to to take the court's uh, opinion and within a matter of, uh, of, of weeks, um, turn around and, and start over. Um, the, 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 the possibility remains that they, they, they'll do that through through um, the summer and, and the fall. But, but I think certainly if uh, President Trump gets the second term, um, I would fully expect that uh, the the Trump administration would would try again, and that would put um, uh, Dreamers in the very real po uh, position of facing facing um, the end of their period in which they can work, they can study, um, and they can start to make uh, a life uh, in in the United States with at least a, a, a promise that they wouldn't be at the target of deportation efforts. And an NPR article says the problem for the administration was that it never wanted to take responsibility for abolishing DACA and instead sought to blame the Obama administration for what it called an illegal and unconstitutional program. And then there's also been recent polling that shows that actually a majority of Trump voters want to protect Dreamers. So we're just curious, how might that impact the administration's decisions moving forward and why Trump seems to be so committed to getting rid of DACA given this information? Well, when it comes to immigration policies, President Trump has, from the very beginning, been focused very squarely on what his most ardent supporters uh, are, are promoting. And, and, and there are key officials within his administration, including most, most prominently Stephen Miller, um, um, who, who have not uh, shifted their attention from a really uh, sweeping uh, um, uh, uh, series of, of, of policies um, that would and that have uh, limited uh, immigration to the United States uh, of, of all kinds. Um, and there's, uh, there's, there's little doubt in my mind that, that the Trump administration would continue to view uh, DACA as a way, uh, rescinding DACA as a way of, of currying favor with their most uh, uh, fervent supporters who, who, who they're going to need, who the president's going to need in November to, to get out of their houses and um, get in line at, at polls or submit their polls by mail um, to, to make sure that he, he can uh, get a second term. Okay, and then another key player in this whole equation is Congress. So is there a scenario where Congress could take action to protect DREAMers? Well, Congress always has the prerogative uh, to legislate uh, to to protect dreamers or any other group of of people who are in the United States. Um, but the the politics of the moment suggests to me that that is 
uh, unlikely to happen. To learn more about today's guests and these Supreme Court decisions, visit du.edu slash radio ed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor and James Swearingen arranged our theme music. We're Alyssa Hurst, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.